The following program was made possible by the generosity of those who have determined to hold fast to the true Roman Catholic religion, as expounded by the Roman Catholic Church before the disasters of Vatican II and the so-called New Mass. Hello and welcome to another live edition of What Catholics Believe. I'm your host, Thomas Nagley. With me tonight is Father William Jenkins. He is a traditional Catholic priest of the Society of St. Pius V, and he also serves as the pastor of Immaculate Conception Church right here in Norwood, Ohio. Hello, Father, how are you tonight? Very fine, Tom. How are you? Just the same, Father. Yeah, it's good to see you. Yes, great to be here again. Okay. Father, uh, any prayer intentions tonight to begin the program, as usual? Oh, definitely. Yeah, I ask everyone to pray for a little child, uh, Blaze. He's undergoing surgery tomorrow, and uh, life-saving surgery, and but also very dangerous. So please keep little Blaze in your prayers, and keep his whole family in your prayers too. They're all concerned, as we all are, about him and his welfare. And uh, also uh, pray for Kate Hennessy and Bernie Kunkel. Pray for Joseph Percher and Donna King. Uh, pray for Jake and his son Strider and. Uh, also, Yvonne Grappentine. Uh, Yvonne just fell and broke her hip, so she just lost her mother to death, too. And no sooner does she have that happen, just bury her mother, than she falls and is seriously hurt. So please pray for her. And uh, priests pray for some who are uh, just deceased, who just recently passed away. Uh, Olive Rose Corr. And uh, also Bernard McGinnis. Bernard uh, was a, uh, a listener of What Catholics Believe, and uh, he's uh, suffered quite a bit from illness and just passed away. So please keep him in your prayers, and also remember his wife is also, who is certainly missing him a great deal, but um, also uh, express some words of great admiration and gratitude to God for giving her a husband, such as uh, Bernard mm -hmm. McGinnis, a good man. And uh, also pray for the soul of Howard Walsh and George Neumeyer. And um, also we have uh, our Mary and Martha of Norwood here watching tonight, so we're happy to have them back, back in town after a long trip, safely back, and I thank God for that. So uh, there are many others, all of those in the Immaculate Heart of Mary prayer list, need our prayers. Mm -hmm. So uh, I commend them to your, to your care. And uh, they ask for us to pray for them because they know we pray. And uh, so I know we won't disappoint them. Yes, Father. Oh. Thank you for that, Father. Lots to pray for. That's good. Um, I should always ask for prayers for our country. Our poor mm -hmm. country is uh, beset by enemies, foreign and domestic. And so we have to pray that our country fall under the, our country submit to the gentle sway of the authority of Christ the King. Mm -hmm. uh, that is my prayer. Absolutely. Well, Father, we uh, wanted to uh, have a discussion tonight on the topic of masculinity, um, mm -hmm. something that's uh, certainly in the, the news a lot, I, I think, these days, and we, we hear about this a lot um, in, in society. There's a, there's a lot of talk. I think there's a lot of confusion uh, around the, the idea of masculinity. Um, but I would like to ask, Father, first of all, could you perhaps provide us with any kind of definition if, if um, you know, what, what is a, what a traditional Catholic masculinity look like? If I were to, you know, ask you to compare and contrast that with uh, maybe some of the, the modern ideals of masculinity, what, what, what does traditional Catholic masculinity look like? What does it look like? Well, <laughs> um, well you know that uh, God created male and female. That's a fact, uh, and that's biology, okay? But uh, masculinity and femininity re refer not to the biology so much as to the mentality. Um, you know, you can have a, a male who is not masculine, you can have a female who is not feminine, um, but uh, when we talk about masculinity, we're talking about what it is to be uh, a man, body, and, well, and, and, and mind. Mm -hmm. Body, mind, and heart. 
to have the, the way of thinking and the way of feeling of a man, you know. Um, and um, what that means, what it, it should be, there's, there's always been an ideal of what it means to be masculine. And um, we've seen throughout history the interplay of these ideas of what it is to be virile uh, as opposed to what it is to be virulent, right? Virulent in the bad sense. I suppose the modern, the modern terminology would be toxic masculinity, right? This is taking uh, <clears throat> uh, more and more of the uh, newsprint <laughs> in our own day. Um, but uh, certainly the, the ideal of Catholic masculinity, or I should say the Catholic ideal of masculinity, could be summed up in chivalry, knighthood. Uh, you know, we think of the knight as the ultimate warrior, right, of the Middle Ages. And he was, you know, uh, the, the mounted knight uh, in his armor and with his weaponry, skilled in using, you know, all, all the weaponry that he carried, um, was a uh, formidable you know, formidable force to be reckoned with. And um, the the church realizing this and the civil society realizing this knew that uh, to be a, a, a mounted a knight, a chevalier, uh, a horseman, right? To be um, someone who was skilled in weaponry, owned weaponry, had the right to, to, to carry a sword, uh, that's, that person would have to be very reliable and trustworthy. He would have to have certain qualities of mind and heart that would enable him not only to uh, fight battles, but to fight them honorably. And uh, to be at the service of those who needed um, someone who was uh, really dedicated to God and dedicated to uh, his liege lord, and uh, dedicated to protect the weak and defend the uh, the honor uh, the honor of women and so on. This is this was the mission of a knight. In fact, if we uh, if we look back at the code of chivalry in the Middle Ages, we find that th there are actually number a number of different codes of chivalry, but they all revolved around the same thing. Uh, they all started with faith, and they all involved hope and charity, and all of the all of the facets of charity. It comes down to, I guess, what in former times was known as a gentleman. A gentleman who had power, but he restrained that power. Um, and his power was not for his own aggrandizement and his own glory. His power was there at the service of God and his neighbor. Uh, you might say the, the, the codes of chivalry could be summed up in the two great commandments. This was the great ideal. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with thy whole heart, thy whole mind, thy whole soul, thy whole strength, and love thy neighbor as thyself. And um, basically, whatever it was said about the codes of chivalry, you could derive from those two great commandments. This was what it was to be virile in those days. It was like the ultimate man, the ultimate masculine man, who was uh, a uh, not the beer-guzzling, uncouth, foul-mouthed, uh, brash bully that sometimes passes for a man today, the type of things you might see in, uh, I don't know, um, you know, with all the trash talk on the sports field and so on and so forth. Um, that That is the opposite of what it is to be virile in the mind of the Catholic Church the a true man has self-control. That's why purity was such, such an important part of the concept of manhood. Um, historically, in the church, purity was a matter of self-control. And one could not call himself a man until he had mastered that self-control. And ultimately, that self-control had to do with matters of purity. Um, Respect for womanhood and uh, to uh, be at the service of the honor of woman and and uh, the purity and the integrity of womanhood was one of the one of the major facets of being a knight.
mm-hmm. that a man had to devote himself to that. Mm-hmm. Um, so, in any case, uh, again, that idea seems to have been quite lost today, huh? yeah. on the idea of manhood. You, you have the idea of man, the hard-drinking, hard-fighting guy, you know, with the bevy of gals, you know, either arm, and that's, that's a man these days, and uh, believe me, um, unfortunately, um, that is that is not what it is to be masculine, not in the eyes of the church. Mm-hmm. That's the idea of what it is to be male, you know, um, and that's what you get when you, you know, get into the animal kingdom, and the horses want their, uh, you know, the male horses want the, the female horses following them, and they, they fight for their, right, like the lions, right, the pride of lions the same way. But that's not what it is to be a human male. A human male was uh, designed by God to uh, reflect his own divine authority, motivated by love, uh, by a genuine love. Um, uh, and, and he exercises that authority out of love, mm-hmm. not just out of to glut himself and to be the lord of the manor and the king of the castle and everybody, you know, wait, wait on hand and foot. That, that's the idea of secular marriage historically in the past to pagan marriage. Uh, but um, uh, but the uh, the sacrament of matrimony, as our Lord elevated the uh, the the natural institution of marriage to a sacrament, a supernatural level, gave it a supernatural power called the sacrament of matrimony. Um, that restores it to the question the matter of giving life, and uh, so a man who marries with the idea of fulfilling God's will. Uh, the primary purpose, uh, the primary essential purpose of, of marriage is to give life. As God created it, that's what's the primary essential purpose of marriage. And uh, nowadays it seems that that's, that's the last thing that some people think about. Um, the secondary essential purpose is that the two spouses take care of each other and take good care of each other, provide for each other, and uh, are faithful to each other. Again, Again, how many people do you find uh, actually keeping that idea, if they ever had that idea, when they got married? But uh, that's what a true man marries for. And again, he sees it as a vocation. And as a vocation, it's a life, it's a calling from God, it's a life of service to God. And um, every life of service is a life of sacrifice. So you find in every man who marries honorably, uh, and with with honorable intentions, that is to say, to uh, uh, to fulfill God's will, every man like that has to have kind of a knightly soul about him. He has to have something of the knight in him, that he is there to serve, defend, protect, give life, and nurture that life, and care for that life, and protect that life that he gives. <clears throat> and ultimately, the life that he wants to give is... Uh, in every way he can, as a father, as a husband, everlasting life. That's what he wants for his wife and his children, and for himself. Mm. So that's the Catholic understanding of what real manhood is, what real masculinity is, uh, what, what knighthood is. Mm-hmm. That's, that's what the Church wants every man to be. Mm-hmm. Father, there's a lot of uh, discussion in society today about um, these uh, gender roles, they're called. Um, First of all, I'd like to know what you think of that term of gender roles. Is there a better better terminology for that? But um, you know, where where do we uh, what what is the source that we uh, that that we learn about these these gender roles from? You know, we hear things sometimes like uh, say the man should be the the protector and provider of his family. The woman should uh, you know should be the heart of the family. She should uh, be the the husband's helpmate and we hear things like this um sometimes people might not agree with some of those things but is there a source that all of these ideas for gender roles come from um if there is a source what is it where do we get god god himself he made male and female and he created a human man and human woman and he joined them together um for the sake of giving life and caring for each other these are the two purposes given in the book of genesis why God created them and joined them together. So God is the one who authored these things, and God is the one who designed these things. And he did design man 
to uh, be the provider and the protector. And he designed woman to be the, essentially the life giver, the, 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 as you say, the heart of the family. Sometimes people say the man is meant to be the head of the family, literally, the head, the thinker, and the woman is made to be the heart of the family, the, the one who feels, right, who has emotions. Well, that's not really fair. It's not really accurate either because um, uh, God, gave, um, God gave them to each other uh, as really partners, you know, in, in, a, in a marriage uh, to perform these two services for him. Uh, God gave them to each other one, to, to jointly give life, right? And it's a joint effort there, right? Uh, and God created them jointly to care for each other and that he knew that they needed each other to care for each other. Um, so they're both uh, human, and they both have human souls, they both have intellect and will. Uh, both man and woman are created in the image of God by nature. And uh, they each reflect the, the perfections of God in a, in a special way. So it's not fair to say the man is supposed to do the thinking and the woman is supposed to do the feeling, okay? <laughs> I mean, let's face it, you know, you're a married man. You didn't marry a woman uh, with the idea, well, I'm going to do all the thinking, and you're not supposed to do any thinking. You just do the feeling, okay? And tell me what you feel, and I'll think about it. Uh, you didn't marry a woman with that idea. You married a woman whom you respected. If, uh, if you didn't marry a woman you respected, that would be very foolish, wouldn't it? It would be very foolish for you, any man, to marry a woman he doesn't respect. Just as it would be very foolish for a woman to marry a man she doesn't respect. Uh, so immediately you'd think that, well, if a man marries a woman and a woman marries a man, uh, then that's a pretty clear sign that they respect each other very much and they respect each other for their qualities, their virtues. Um, they just don't respect them for being male and female. They respect them for being man and woman, masculine and feminine. And one of the most important things about that is that um, they love each other. What does it mean? Well, uh, you know, uh, we say that um, the philosophers say that love tr is actually a matter of, of willing the good of the other. That any true love involves willing the good of another person. Benevolencia, they call it. And... Uh, so that applies to actually the love we have for our fellow men. That we want their good. But there's a special love that has to be present between a man and a woman who get married. It's not just the love of friendship. It's not just the love of relatives, uh, of the extended family and so on. There has to be a very special love between a man and a woman who marry because they have to be so united that they've got to be united in, in faith, really. The church says... You know, um, this is the way it should be. They should be united in a common faith. They should be united in uh, their intelligence. Their intellect should be united in such a way that they can um, communicate with each other in an intelligent, thoughtful way and a reasonable way. And that they can respect each other for their intelligence. Uh, but also emotionally. They have to be bound together emotionally. They, they must uh, be, well, nowadays I can say it's a compatible uh, in the, in uh, their feelings. Now, a woman's feelings and a man's feelings, uh, well, let's put it this way. Men and women do not express their feelings in the same way. They have the same feelings, essentially, uh, the same passions, but they just express them differently. But uh, they have to be, you know, complementary. Uh, they, 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 um, in a sense, it's supplementary, supplementarity and complementarity, they have to work together also emotionally. And uh, they have to find that attraction also on the physical level. You, you expect a couple that gets married to be so united with each other in all these ways um, that they can relate to each other in the correct sense of the word, have a proper relationship with each other, that they are drawn to each other what does the book of Genesis chapter, chapter 3 says? It says the two shall become uh, two in one flesh. That bond between them should be so, so close and so intimate. Um, 
now I've had people come and say we want to get married, and in the process of giving the marriage instruction, I, it seemed to be that they were very fond of each other, but I just don't know that they really love each other as they need to love each other to be husband and wife. They may be great friends, you know, but you know when a man and a woman marry, they have to love each other in a very unique and powerful way. <clears throat> Um, because they've got to love each other for the long haul, as long as they both live, and they've got to have the will to, to love every day of their lives. Even when they don't necessarily like each other, they still have to love each other. In fact, you might even say, even when they don't like each other, it's most important for them to love each other more, <laughs> more most of all. Um, and that's an act of the will. It's a decision you make to love. It's an act of the will to love. So, um, you know, you, you have to have that in a, in a married couple, and um, they bond together that tightly. Uh, nowadays, I, d I don't know that um, many people who marry necessarily love each other that way. I don't know where they'd get the example except knowing parents. Mm. I mean, ideally, uh, you know, every, every young man and young woman would have learned the meaning of love in his own family, especially from his own parents. Uh, counseling him verbally, but especially setting the example of love. <clears throat> and um, one of the primary manifestations of love is patience. You know, you have to, what does St. Saint, Saint, um, Francis Sale says? He says, um, we need a, a, an ocean of patience. <clears throat> he even says that the, the married state is the most difficult state of all. St. Francis Sale said that. Really? <clears throat> In his estimation. And if that was true back in the 1600s, it's certainly every bit is true right now. Mm -hmm. So, um, in any way, in any case, Tom, um, there has to be a, a, a true love present there, but we have to learn to love. And uh, I, I mentioned that in the last program, in fact, we have to learn two things to really um, know who God is, let alone who we are who we ourselves are, and that is we have to learn the meaning of authority, we have to learn the meaning of love. And the two of them are inseparable, or should be inseparable, because all authority uh, must be motivated by love and exercised because of love. Right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. An authority that tries to impose itself without love behind it is tyranny, is the most brutal tyranny. Mm -hmm. um, and that, of course, starts in the home. Now, the, the husband does have a role to play, there's no doubt about it. God did not create Adam and Eve identical, and so you would expect that they would each have their role to play. And it is true. I mean, God gave to Adam the primary responsibility. Adam was primarily responsible. So much so that even when Eve fell to the serpent's temptation, it was not yet quote, original sin, until Adam himself, um, you know, until Adam himself bit, as it were. When Adam uh, took that and um, uh, took that, well, they call it an apple, but it was the, the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And that's very important to remember. It's a matter of the knowledge of good and evil that they were biting into. Um, something that they did not know, evil. They did not know evil at that time, but they they wanted that, right? Because the serpent uh, tempted Eve and told her that if she took of that and learned of the knowledge, had the knowledge of good and evil, she would be as God. And um, so we think about Eve falling victim to the temptation of Satan himself, a fallen, at least, archangel, right? So, um, but we think of Adam falling simply because Eve presented this to him and wanted him to do this. I've mentioned before that I think that order of temptation was very well thought out by Satan, who knew that he, might, he would be much more able to influence evil, Eve than he would Adam, but that Eve had much more influence over Adam than he, even, even Lucifer did, mm -hmm. and that uh, Adam might do for Eve what he would not do uh, for uh, for Lucifer, yeah, that's and in any case, that's how it worked out, right? Mm -hmm. And so um, that's when original sin actually was 
um, took place, and that's when original sin actually became effective, when Adam himself fell. He is the one who bears the primary responsibility. And as the one who bears the primary responsibility, he also bears, he must have the primary authority too, to go with that. Um, if he didn't have the primary authority, he wouldn't, he wouldn't have the primary responsibility. Um, it wouldn't work, that, it doesn't work that way. The responsibility and the authority have to come together. He had it, he bears the responsibility, and uh, the, ultimately the shame is his for what happened. Um, but um, the fact is that uh, God, in creating uh, man and woman, was instilling in them his own image, and um, he was, in a sense, giving them the two great factors, in a sense, we might see in the very concept of God himself, loving father, loving father. And uh, men love, women love, but they don't love the same way. Um, the word love is common to both of them, and it has an essential meaning that is common to both. But men love as men, and women love as women. God wanted it that way. He designed it that way. Women uh, think as women. Men think as men. They are not identical in that. God wanted both. He wanted them to complement each other. Uh, he wanted them to support each other. It's sort of like two eyes. You know, when you have two eyes, you have depth perception. You know, when you have one eye, you don't have that depth perception. <clears throat> and um, and the, the two eyes uh, together work together to give us the depth perception we have. God wanted the, the two perspectives, the masculine and the feminine perspective. And uh, God wanted them to be drawn to each other by that. Uh, there's a certain kind of mystery and complementarity, as I say, that draws them together. And they realize that together they're stronger than they would be individually. A man marries a woman because he believes she brings something to him that maybe he can live without, but he doesn't want to live without it. He wants her to be in his life. And the same with a woman. I mean, she's drawn to the man because she sees that he brings to her life certain qualities and certain uh, goods that she doesn't have uh, necessarily, not to that degree anyway, and she sees that he adds something to her life, and she might say, well, I can live without him if I have to, but I don't want to. And so they agree to marry each other, and they'll, live, they'll be together as long as they both live. And uh, for better and for worse, right? For richer, for poorer, <laughs> sickness and health until death. Um, that, those are the terms of the contract. <laughs> And uh, the last part, until death, that's, that's the hard part, right? Mm. But every marriage contract, every, every marriage, the vows always end with those words, until death was part. Very sobering thought. Um, so the, um, anyway, yes, the roles are fixed by God, and they are meant to work together, and they are meant to make a man and a woman stronger together than they could be apart from each other. Mm. Father, what would you say to, uh, to someone who might, find some of these ideals um, maybe, maybe maybe offensive or, or even just um, not not desirable you know perhaps there are some men who uh, might say you know that that's an awful lot of responsibility I'm not sure that I want to handle all that responsibility myself I would like for my wife to share in the responsibility of, of say providing for my family perhaps I want my wife to get a job to help provide for the family but also you'll find some women who might say well you know I, I find that idea of just of being, being the helpmate being submissive to my husband I find that offensive uh, somehow degrading or, or demeaning. Um, how would you respond to someone who, who came to you with that idea? Well, you know, you, if you want a woman who's a career woman, then she should just be a single woman living in the world and be a career woman and devote herself to her career. But as long as she has a career, if she has children, uh, there will be a choice that she has to make between the two of them. Because a career it takes a lot of her time and a lot of her attention. And she wants to make it in the world. And, uh, you know, she would be very, very good at what she does. You know, some say that uh, men have the idea that women, you know, can't do much. Uh, but that's not true. I mean, many of the women we know can do just about everything a man does. And some can do it better, you know. Uh, some women are stronger than some men, you know, <laughs> even physically. Um, so it's not really a matter of 
talent uh, or ability, um, you know, some of the most excellent, even in, in the sciences and, and math, some of them have been women. doesn't mean it comes to them naturally, as naturally as it would for most men, but they're interested, they work hard, and they succeed. And we know this can happen, right? Uh, excellent doctors, physicians, and, uh, and just right, down the, right along the line. It's not, it's not a matter of that, but what it is a matter of is uh, the fact that, that God wanted women to uh, be able to give life and to nurture that life. And uh, women kind of naturally bring a perspective uh, that often men don't have. And in fact, it's a good thing that men don't have that. I mean, in the world, especially after original sin took place, I mean, there had to be a, a human uh, who um, basically was not very sensitive, um, who could just deal with the matters of life uh, with a very thick skin, as it were. And uh, I think men generally meet that requirement. Um, uh, men don't uh, harbor, uh, let's say, uh, slights and so on as women do because they're very sensitive. Men tend to be rather insensitive um, in dealing with each other. That's that's very important in dealing in uh, in battle, dealing with the business world, uh, and so on. <clears throat> men have to be able to just basically get over it quickly and forget about it and say, well, whatever, you know. Um, and men generally can get into an argument and then go off and, you know, just have a beer, go bowling together, or go golfing or whatever. And, um, you know, it, it just passes. They don't brood too much about it, you know. Uh, but that also has its downside. And that is there are times when they should be aware and they're not. Times when they need to be aware and they're not. And uh, they see that, that capacity in a woman, when a woman is really aware of what's going on, especially in the minds and hearts of other people. You know, they, they have that sensitivity that they can tell, even wordlessly. I mean, let's face it, if a woman is going to uh, be made by nature to be the mother of a child, she has to pick up on things that, uh, you know, are very subtle, you know. So her, she has to have a certain tendency or, or gift for subtlety, you know. Uh, reading it and and giving it and <laughs> speaking it, um, and so you know a man can appreciate that woman, and he realizes that again you know she sees things that I don't. She's aware of things that I don't, and uh, I appreciate that. You know that's a, that's a, an ability that I'd like I'd, I'd like to have access to. I'd like to have that in my life, and a man can admire that as woman and in his in his wife. You know, they can be having a conversation, couples can be having a conversation, um, and then, you know, on the drive home, uh, the man can say to his wife, well, that went well, and she'd say, no, no, it didn't. <laughs> <laughs> and he said, well, what do you mean? I thought everybody, we seemed to get along fine. No, no, not really. Didn't you notice this, and did you notice that? And the man was totally oblivious to it. But the woman picked up on it right away. There were cues there. And that, uh, and a man might even notice that in conversation. That when the women are talking, the man can't follow the conversation. He cannot follow the line of thought here. Uh, but the women immediately know. They, they understand exactly what each other are talking about. I mean, to us, it, it sounds like a non sequitur, you know, that we're jumping from one topic to another. But the women follow it seamlessly. And in the end, the men are saying, what was that all about? <laughs> you know? Um, because men have very, there's the very linear thinking about things, which can be very good. <clears throat> a man can be very uh, analytical. Generally, men are gifted with very analytical thinking. And uh, maybe women, we tend to think not so much so. Uh, you know, women think of men as having one-track minds, and men think of women as being scatterbrained. And there's a reason for that. You know, and it's not a bad reason, actually. Um, you know, if, if I talk to, uh, you know, a woman and say, could you take care of this? Could you take care of that? Could you take care of the other thing? I might see a woman, on the, you know, sitting at the desk doing some work. And uh, <laughs> on the telephone, 
there'd be somebody else is sitting across the deck talking to them. It's all going on at the same time. And I say, could you please check on this as I walk by? And they say, yeah, I'll take care of it. And I keep walking. I think, well, you know, on the phone, you know, writing this down, <laughs> listening to somebody else, maybe a child talk to them. There's no way she's going to get this. <clears throat> I come back 45 minutes later. It's all taken care of. And I ask myself, how is this possible? How is this possible? And uh, But a, a woman's mind is meant to, uh, like a juggler, just keep all these things in the air at all times, right? And that uh, just comes kind of natural to them. And uh, a man can do that, but he has to work really hard at it. Uh, but on the other hand, I mean, you know, the, the man might be, like in the old days, sitting at the breakfast table, uh, reading the newspaper. Nowadays, I suppose he's on his phone or whatever. And, uh, you know, his wife may be talking about all the things that are going to be happening that day, and he's just saying, yeah, uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> and uh, finally, I mean, she just says, you're not listening to a word I'm saying. And he says, uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> he, he doesn't hear a word she's saying. He's totally phased out, zoned out. He's just paying attention to what he's looking at. But that's because he's totally focused. He's completely focused on this. This is a strength and a weakness of the, of the male mind. Totally focused on this. So he's just shut everything else out. But this is kind of a manifestation of the fact that a man's mind is geared to focus and just eliminate everything on the background. And uh, his mind is made to be completely analytical, that he analyzes and analyzes and analyzes. Now in the sciences, in the math and so on, uh, fields, that's a good thing. That's a strength. In other areas, it would not be. And uh, again, uh, both of these ways of thinking are, are designed by God to accomplish very specific tasks that are necessary. And when they're at war with each other, it's, it's devastating. It's devastating. When they're united, they're a real force to be reckoned with. The strengths of the male mind, the masculine person, and the strength of the female mind, the, the, the feminine person, when they're united together for a common cause and out of common love, they are very powerful for good. When they're opposed to each other, they're a very powerful force for evil and, and disaster, as we see too often in the courtrooms uh, of America. So, yes, Tom, I mean, God did design uh, not just the male and the female, he designed the masculine and the feminine to complement each other, supplement each other, and uh, to work together in a beautiful way. I mean, if I may just uh, you know, say one more thing. They've done studies on this, of course, um, <clears throat> hooking uh, human, human, living human beings up to EEGs, electroencephalographs, and uh, watching how the brain reacts to certain problems that are presented. And uh, I've read some of these studies where they, you know, do they hook up the electrodes and try to keep track of what part of the brain responds to certain questions. <clears throat> uh, men and women, you know, uh, roughly the same age group and so on. And uh, there's a very decided difference between the female brain and the male brain and the way they react to each other. <clears throat> I should say the way they react to, uh, let's say, a common problem. <clears throat> they found that uh, whether they were asking about uh, something going on in the kitchen, like a, an accident, something falling and breaking in the kitchen, or an, an algebraic problem that is presented to them, or you know any number of other things, uh, that the female brain reacts one way and the male brain reacts another way. They found that the male brain uh, actually springs to action uh, in a very limited way. It's very concentrated, the male brain. Whereas in the female brain, there might be three or four different centers of the brain that light up to the same problem. Um, um, they look for explanations of that. Uh, the corpus callosum, which is the bundle of uh, nerve fibers that joins the hemispheres of the brain, is much thicker in the woman. Uh, the, the connection between the right hemisphere and the left hemisphere of the brain is, is much larger in the woman than it is a man. What does it mean? Well, there are studies on that too. 
<clears throat> but obviously, the, the, there's a connection between the right and the left hemispheres that is, uh, in, in the woman, you know, it's, it's different, physically different. <clears throat> but they found out that even when they ask questions that apparently have no emotional content, for example, a, an algebra problem, uh, that the female brain often responds by the emotional part of the brain also becoming active. And, uh, of course, the question presented itself, well, why would that be so? That's not the case in the male brain. The male brain just thinks of the numbers, manipulating the numbers, right, and then following the, the rules of algebra. <laughs> so, uh, why would the female brain often react also by, by the uh, emotional part of the brain responding? <clears throat> and they thought, well, because <clears throat> the women, um, it makes an impression on women. For example, if they were in a math class, and let's say <clears throat> their teacher fell ill one day, and uh, suddenly they had to get a substitute teacher, and their regular teacher, whom they loved and was, you know, they're rather attached to, became ill and died, or suffered a fall and broke a leg, and they were out for the rest of the year, whatever. That that would affect a female student more than a male student, that she would kind of maintain that memory. And it kind of associated with uh, associated with uh, with algebra, and so uh, years later, if they present an algebra problem to her, it might come back. And uh, uh, men men's brains make associations too, as any rational thinking person would, and women's brains make associations too, but they don't necessarily make all the same associations. And. Uh, so they actually have seen that graphically, you know, the uh, electroencephalograph uh, data that they come across. So uh, there's no doubt about it. They can argue all they want, argue about it all they want and deny reality all they want. But God created male and female. He created the masculine mind and the, and the, the feminine mind. And they have their strengths and he wants to unite them in sacred, in a marriage and holy matrimony for the sake of giving life and caring for each other. They can't denying reality ends in disaster, and that's that's exactly where they're heading right now. Mm -hmm. Father, there was a uh, a book that was recently published not not too long ago. It was titled "Terror of Demons" by one uh, Kennedy Hall, a uh, a Catholic author, and uh, th this book has has come to our attention. It's been it's been mentioned in these discussions multiple times, and uh, I won't necessarily ask you about the particulars of the book. I know you haven't had a chance to read through all of it yet, but um, just just in general, Father, I think uh, some of the, the main main premises contained in this work are that uh, many, if not most, of the problems in society today are uh, can, can be laid at the feet of, of men, and uh, in particular, we have in society today, the author claims, a lot of um, what he calls effeminate men, weak men, um, he kind of outlines a lot of the, uh, the the vices that are shown by these effeminate men, and um, tries to outline a plan for how to overcome a lot of these vices and become a, a real masculine Catholic man. Um, but just in, in general, Father, what what do you think about that idea? Um, can can would you say that most of the problems in society today can be attributed to these effeminate men? I think so. I think so. Uh, well, there's been a war against manhood, a war against masculinity. I mean, when, when an enemy wants to destroy a, um, a target, they, they soften it up, you know, they, they kind of <clears throat> want to weaken its resistance, its resolve, and so on. And so an enemy will try to destroy the, the will of uh, the man to resist, because the man is going to be the fighter, mostly, right? So um, it's, it's understandable that... Um, that there's a concerted effort on the part of hell and those who are on the surface of hell here on earth to destroy manhood. This is they would want to destroy Eve, uh, I'm sorry, Adam, and, and break down the manhood that God gave him and weaken him. So um, I... I interested in that in the book that the 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 title of the book is interesting i haven't read it myself i know that you've read some of it um and i but i won't ask you for your impressions of it um here you know i'd like to be more familiar with it myself but in any case 
the um, I, I tell my class, I think I think the feminist movement, the women's liberation movement, is largely uh, precipitated by, caused by, uh, by the failure of men to be men. Um, because when I think of manhood, I think of responsibility. Again, I, th I think of, of the knight, you know, the man who has the knight, who has this code of conduct. Um, and um, when men fail in their responsibilities, I think that leaves women uh, to have to try to shoulder much of that responsibility. When men, when men fail to provide for their families, and, and let's face it, I mean, it's not, sometimes it's not the man's fault. Uh, you know, sometimes the men become ill, uh, they pass away, sometimes the, the world around them is hostile to them and makes it very difficult for them. Yes, sometimes the women do need to have an income, especially in the world today. Father Frederick Becker said this back in the 1960s, that conditions were being created in this country to make it necessary for both the, the, the husband and the wife to work so that the children would not be raised by their parents, but would be raised by, let's say, the school system, uh, the local librarian who had a custody of them after school hours or whatever else. Um, and basically, uh, you know, Father, Father Becca um, certainly understood, you know, the, uh, the dynamic of what was going on. He'd been a prisoner in communist China for about six years. <laughs> when he came back to this country, he saw what was happening. And he saw that it was the work of an enemy. He said it was being caused by agents, communist agents here in this country, um, to destroy the family. So, in any way, he made no bones about it. His, uh, his observations are available in a speech he gave called The Two Fists of Communism. And it is available online. It's a very powerful talk, uh, very instructive to us today about communism and what's happening in our own country right this minute. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> But uh, in any case, the, um, the, the, the way that God designed it was the man would, would be the, uh, the provider for the family. That is the natural way it goes. When a man willingly fails, when he determinedly fails uh, to provide, uh, that shifts the, the burden to the wife. Um, so she's gone from needing a husband who was like the rock of Gibraltar under her feet, totally unshakable, immovable, solid as granite. And so she has her hands full, taking care of the children, raising them. That's a full-time job. Then to do that and to have to go out and provide for them at the same time is superhuman. Uh, it was never really meant to be that way. It is sometimes a necessary evil, but it is an evil to be in a situation like that. And women resent that, and rightly so. Um, when, when men simply fail their responsibilities, a woman has every re reason to resent that, to betrayal. And, um, but women loving their children as they do uh, are willing to do whatever it takes. And uh, some of these noble women who've risen to the occasion when their husbands have failed them and failed the children have really shown wonderful examples of fortitude and uh, have really shown the the strengths really of not only the female character uh, the feminine character but the masculine character too they have to be basically husband and father that's again uh, a superhuman task and there are women who fulfilled it admirably <clears throat> but um i'm afraid the result of men failing to to live up to their responsibilities has also been a good breeding ground for the feminist movement, saying, well, if men are going to get away with being irresponsible, we want to be equally irresponsible. And that's what they mean by equality. They want to be equally irresponsible. If men don't have to do it, we don't want to have to do it either. If men don't have to provide for their families, then don't look at us, we're not going to do it either. If men don't have to care for their wives and their children, we're not going to have to do it either. We want to be free too. And the birth control pill was a big step in that direction, saying, oh, now we can do this and we don't have to have kids, okay? Now, that equalizes, that's an equalizer with men now, see? That's how they began to look at these things. And so this, the sad, saddest thing of all is that not only would you have husbands and fathers who are irresponsible 
not caring for their families. But now the women are demanding the same, the same rights, as it were, um, to be equally irresponsible. So the poor kids are basically orphaned. And, and um, obviously that's not the solution. All it does is kind of consummate the evil, you know, make it as bad as it can be. Uh, the solution to um, men being irresponsible as husbands and fathers is not giving women the equal right to be irresponsible, but making men be responsible, just insisting, and even by law, that men be held accountable before the law of the land to live up to their responsibilities as husbands and fathers. Um, when the law of the land actually supports that irresponsibility, encourages the irresponsibility, as, for example, with divorce laws and so on, when it encourages the dissolution of marriages, what you know exactly what you're going to get. The law works as a kind of acid to dissolve whatever good there is and just leaves the wreckage of society and, that's, and the wreckage of families. And that's what we're, we've witnessed. We've witnessed this for years, decades now. Mm. So... Um, I do believe that uh, the responsibility of men, some men, some men, not all by, by any means, <clears throat> has, uh, has bred this women's liberation movement and this idea, well, we want to be equally irresponsible. And that's what they mean by equality. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> it's a very evil thing. Well, Father, final question for you. You mentioned how um, masculinity, manhood, it, it's under attack in the world. Um, what advice would you offer to a man in the world today who wanted to uh, avoid effeminacy, who wanted to be a truly masculine Catholic man? Uh, what advice would you offer to him? Well, uh, he has to, first of all, have faith. Perhaps the answer, part of the answer is here in the knightly code of chivalry. Okay, In other words, the Catholic ideal of what a, a real man is, you know. And... Um, this is what it takes to be a man in the eyes of, you, know, you might say, in the eyes of the church. Um, in the Song of Roland, a uh, medieval piece of great literature, uh, we, we find a code of chivalry. First, to fear God and maintain his church. Secondly, to serve the liege lord in valor and faith. Next, to protect the weak and defenseless. Fourth, to give help or succor to widows and orphans. Fifth, to refrain from wanton giving of offense. Sixth, to live by honor and for glory. Next, to despise pecuniary award. That means not to do what you do for the sake of money. Okay? as money, as though that were the purpose. Next, to fight for the welfare of all. Nine, to obey those placed in authority. Ten, to guard the honor of fellow knights. Next, to eschew unfairness, meanness, and deceit. Eschew means reject unfairness, meanness, and deceit. Next, to keep faith, which means fidelity, right? To be faithful to your word. Thirteen, at all times to speak the truth. They go together. Fourteen, uh, to keep the word that you've given and then to always speak the truth to begin with. Fourteen, to persevere to the end in any enterprise begun. Fifteen, to respect the honor of women. Sixteen, never to refuse a challenge from an equal. And seventeen, never to turn the back upon a foe. So we see here prudence, we see here uh, perseverance, we see here uh, courage. But before e even that, you know, that you, things that you might find in a confrontation and battle, we see uh, the protection of the weak and the defenseless, right? We see the living up to one's responsibilities that's, that's essential. And so, in the uh, Knight's Code of Chivalry described by the Duke of Burgundy, roughly at the same time, 
He listed the virtues for which a knight must, must live and which the knight must manifest. And he begins with faith, charity, justice, wisdom, prudence, temperance, resolution, truth, liberality, meaning the sense of generosity is what it meant then. Diligence, hope, valor. Now, is this not what any woman would want to marry? I mean, yes, I mean, there, there are women who say, I don't want to, you know, be subject to my husband. I don't want to have to listen to him. We're equals. And, uh, but I mean, what woman wouldn't want to marry a man that just described a real man like that? And uh, the problem we have nowadays is that it's hard to find a man, you know, who has these qualities. So that I think often women have just given up and despaired of finding a man like that. They just want to find a man they can tolerate, <clears throat> basically. And um, But, uh, you know, if you have a woman who finds a man she really respects because he really is respectable, I mean, that's, that's important. Uh, obviously more than important because if she respects him and, and he deserves that respect, that's a great hope that she has. She's going to marry a male man, have a real husband, and a real father for her children. And a woman will respect that. A woman will respect that in a man. Um, you know, you, you see the ideal of manhood as given by the NFL, the you know, NBA today, and so on, all the trash talking and uh, hot shots and so on. And you say, well, how, how can a woman respect that? And what kind of a woman would that man marry that he would respect, you know, if she kind of mirrors him. She's more of a drinking buddy, <clears throat> you know, uh, just somebody to hang out with than an actual wife, and a, you know, a mother of his children. The, I, I, would, I would say to a man, be a man and take responsibility. Take the responsibility. What does it mean for you? Well, if you take the responsibility, uh, your, your wife, you will be respectable and your wife will respect you. And I would say to a woman, too, at the same time, you know, marry a man whom you respect. You'd be a fool if you married a man you didn't respect. Marry a man whose judgment you respect. Marry a man whose competence, whose courage, whose perseverance, you, have, you respect yourself. You respect him for that. And um, marry a man who loves you second best. Of all the things that the man loves, of everything the man loves, marry a man who loves you second of all. But make sure that man loves God first of all. Make sure he, he loves God first of all. His greatest love has to be God. You, have, you need that. You need that as his wife and as the mother of his children. You need to marry a man who loves God most of all. Why? Well, because... You know, this is a man who is going to have to be able to say no. Sometimes women think, well, if I can marry a man, you know, I can get my way. I'll just manipulate him and, and, and he'll give in. And that's a very tragic mistake because when they marry a man like that, it will dawn, it will dawn on them sooner or later that, wait a minute, if I marry a man whom I feel that I can manipulate and get to give me my way, then... Um, again, who else can do that to him? He's subject to being manipulated by me. Who else could do this to him? And to whom else can he maybe not say no? Maybe to a boss? To another woman? Who knows where that ends, you know? So a woman needs to know that she's marrying a man who can say no. And he really needs to be able to say no to her. But she has to have the confidence in his love for her that he wants her happiness so much that he can and will say no only when it's a matter of conscience, when he believes it's a matter of right and wrong. Because if it's not, if he realizes if it's just a matter of what pleases him and what pleases her, well, his joy is seeing her happy. And uh, he, wants, he wants to make her happy. And so his joy will be seeing that she, you know, is well served as a wife and provided for as a wife and so on. Uh, you don't want to marry a man who says, well, I want to go to the monster truck rally and you want to go to here and the kids want to go there. 
Well, I mean, we're all going to go to the most terrific rally because that's what I want to do, you know? And if you don't want to do it, then go somewhere else. A woman doesn't want to marry a man like that who just says, I'm going to my way, you know, always my way. Uh, that's not a man in the eyes of the church. Um, but he wants to do what is good for the family. And sometimes what is good for the family, uh, he will see as a matter of principle. And in a case like that, he's, he's going to have to be able to say, Honey, I, I hear what you say. I take it seriously. I really thought about it and prayed about it. And um, I really am convinced that this is the right way to go. You know, and I'm sorry, you know, I don't want anybody to hurt you or offend you or anything like that, but it's a matter of principle. It's a matter of conscience for me. I believe that this is uh, the right thing to do. I'm not apologizing for it. Uh, you know that. Um, but, you know, uh, this is what I, I think we have to do. I'm convinced of it. And, you know, I think a woman can respect that. I think a woman can't respect anything other than that. You know, and a man who can't do that. Uh, so uh, he's got to be able to take his ground and stand his ground when it's a matter of right and wrong, a matter of principle, that is based upon a matter of a love for God. And a woman who marries a man who can do that can respect him and know that he's motivated by love, a love for God and a love for her at the same time. And he's not going to betray one or the other and put them, pit them against each other. <clears throat> but a man who can't do that, he loses his wife's respect immediately. Um, and she can't have any confidence in him. And suddenly, uh, you know, what is most important to her, and that stability and, st and, and that, that solidity of, of the world around me, it, it becomes like a move, everything is moving. It's like an earthquake. That she doesn't have any solid ground to stand on. Uh, unless she has a man who's, as I say, like the rock at Gibraltar. He's just unshaken when it comes to matters of right and wrong. He just takes, takes his stand on that. Now, that doesn't mean he's an unreasonable. He's unreasonable, uh, but it means... He's, as I say, it's not a matter of a stand taken out of pride. It's a matter of, of taken out of love. Uh, and uh, it's a matter of love for God. If he, and how does she know? Well, one way she'll know is if when it comes down to it and he has to make a decision like that, he's banging his fist on the table saying, no, 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 this is the way I say it should be and this is the way I believe it should be. I, this is God's will and, you know. Um, that's not the way a man who makes a decision out of love conducts himself. But he's very calm, and he's very steady, and uh, as I say, you know, when, when you have, let's say, the, the fist banger and the shouter and the voice raiser and all the rest, because he's taking a stand, um, that's more like the earthquake, okay? But if he's the rock of Gibraltar, he just quietly and steadily and firmly uh, with resolve, moves ahead on what he believes is the right thing to do. And that's what a woman needs. She needs that calm, steady uh, conviction in a man. That, that I think, is, and that, that, that is based on faith. It's based, uh, based upon faith in God, the Son of God, our Lord Jesus Christ, the, the work of the Holy Ghost. And that's where faith comes in. And that's where all of these codes of chivalry start with that. That faith. In other words, the model is our Lord Jesus Christ himself and his sacred heart. So um, if a man needs a model to follow as to what it is that makes him a man, he's got to look at the kingship of Christ. He's got to look at Christ the King. Because a man should be, for his family, basically filling that role, Christ the King. So, not that we enthrone him. Christ the King is the one enthroned. Mm -hmm. uh, but he is his uh, regent, you might say. Yeah. So. Okay, well, thank you, Father. It's been uh, very enlightening, very humiliating. I've taken lots of notes on things. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, thank you for all that, Father. Thank you. Well, tell me some, some interest and some help. So. In yeah, I think so. Father, God bless you. Appreciate you. Well, thank you, Tom. Yep. Same with you. God bless you and all of our dads out there. Amen. Yeah, that's right. And all of our dads to be and all of our future clergymen, all of our future, whether your vocation is to be married, 
consecrated to God in the religious life of the uh, priesthood or be single in the world. You have a vocation, a role to fill, but you have to, you have to be a man to do it. It takes a real man to do it. So uh, don't just be male as the world pretends is all it takes to be a man. Be masculine in the full sense of the word. Be what God intended you to be. Amen. Well, thank you to all of our viewers for watching this episode of What the Catholics Believe. Until next time, we ask that you all remember the words of Our Lady at Fatima to consecrate yourselves and your families to the Immaculate Heart of Mary and to pray and do penance. Thank you and God bless you.